Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to look at what can be done to treat hypermobility and how to improve our lives given our circumstances. Today, we are very happy to have Lillian Holm as our guest. Lillian's Instagram page can be found at hypermobilitydoctor. She is a doctor of physical therapy who focuses on the treatment of hypermobility conditions like Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, as well as orthopedic conditions and chronic pain. Dr. Holm utilizes a comprehensive, unique model of care, which includes extended private treatment sessions. She creates home programs for her patients, which are recorded on a secure app and allows access to home exercises from the convenience of one's home. Dr. Holmes' care plans may also address sleep, nutrition, and other aspects of the individual's specific condition or conditions. Dr. Holmes' sessions are offered in person and through telehealth appointments and are generally covered by Blue Cross and Blue Shield plans, Medicare, and as out-of-network services by some other insurers. She also offers self-pay options for those who do not have applicable insurance coverage. Lillian, hello. Thanks for joining us today. I'm looking forward to discussing your programs and your approach. Thank you for having me. First, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you became interested in physical therapy and specifically how you became interested in hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome? Well, physical therapy is really a problem-solving profession. That's what appealed to me um, at the outset. And um, as a person, I take a very pragmatic and analytical approach to any problem in, in life. I like to understand a problem well in order to understand what the best solution is for it. And uh, uh, physical therapy is really the art and science of helping people do just that when it comes to their bodies. Uh, Having a human body is, of course, having a very miraculous uh, vehicle for moving through life. It's, I'm always in awe of it, its complexity, its functionality, and the fact that it's a self-healing machine, if you will. Uh, but as we all know, problems do arise too. And I, and as I mentioned, I believe that they are best solved through analysis and, and a very logical, uh, linear, stepwise approach to solve those uh, uh, problems and challenges. Um, when it comes to why I decided to specialize in hypermobility disorders, uh, my story is probably the same as it is for many other healthcare professionals who do that. I felt the need to understand my own body better, and in doing so, I really came to realize how great a number of people there are out there who are um, diagnosed or undiagnosed with hypermobility disorders such as hypermobility spectrum disorder or Ehlers-Danlos syndromes that are not receiving appropriate care that's specific to their um, individual needs. And that's, of course, because, as we know, hypermobility disorders are so poorly recognized and poorly understood in the healthcare system in, in general. Absolutely. And that, that brings me to another concept that's kind of a big um, issue in the hypermobility community. Um, there's this kind of ongoing discussion about the prevalence of hypermobility conditions and whether Ehlers-Danlos is rare or just rarely diagnosed, but actually... Um, more prevalent. And as a practitioner, do you have thoughts on that? Do you have thoughts on what what percentage of the population, or you know, whether this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg? The you know, the people that are diagnosed and aware of their condition. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, we have data on diagnosed people that fit. Uh, match the criteria of hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. We have uh, genetic markers for the other Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. But hypermobility is such a broad spectrum. It's not really a binary thing. So uh, my experience in almost three decades of treating patients is that there is really a large number of people who um, are somewhere along that spectrum and have no idea. And um, I do see that when you take that hypermobility into account, 
even if it's affecting a certain area of their body a bit more than uh, the rest, that, that can really be, um, be helpful and help those patients uh, move forward. So, yeah, I do think that it's very, very underdiagnosed. And uh, that reminds me that even in physical therapy school, when my students uh, fellow students were wondering about my body, how it bent and uh, behaved in different ways than theirs. The professor said that there was nothing special going on. I just had long hamstrings. So even at that level, we know that it's not really seen or understood. I think that's absolutely consistent with my experience and with so many others. Um, And it's really unfortunate. And, you know, hopefully... Um, it, it does feel like the tide's beginning to turn a little bit, that more people are becoming aware of it. And, um, you know, through efforts of people like yours to, you know, get the message out there and um, and spread awareness of um, accurate information about the condition, because unfortunately, there can be there's, there's such polarity when it comes to hypermobility conditions. Um, you know, sometimes they're talked about in very doom and gloom terms. Uh, you know, I once had a doctor say to me, Oh, I'm sorry, you have this curse. And I rejected that notion completely. I thought I'm not cursed. You know, if anything, the, the lack of understanding and awareness, um, and the medical systems, sort of failures to appreciate and understand and respond to my issues, you know, maybe that could be thought of as some sort of curse, but I'm not cursed. There's nothing inherently, you know, this is just the way I'm built. Um, And so there can be kind of that sort of dark doom and gloom, or there can be this, um, you know, a a broader cultural tendency, no pain, no gain, push through everything, um, you know, always be a champion. And, I, there's got to be some kind of middle ground because we we are a bit fragile. I mean, we have literal tissue fragility and um, we do have limitations, uh, very real ones. Um, and, and we're all so different. I mean, for people that have such similar stories in so many ways, you know, so many of us have been diagnosed late in life and had a lot of strange medical issues and have this bendiness. But uh, I'm consistently struck by how individual, um, you know, people with hypermobility are. And that seems to be um, a great asset of your practice that you are treating an individual, not a condition. Well, um, I would guess that Michael Phelps probably doesn't think that his body is a curse. And he clearly benefits from having very hypermobile uh, shoulders and upper extremities, for example. And nor would many of the other amazing athletes and artists and musicians and other people who are very directly benefiting from their uh, their hypermobility. Or a woman in labor who goes through an easier process and her baby uh, thanks to the hypermobility. Um, I, I like to call it... Uh, certainly not a curse. I'm so sorry you had to hear that. Uh, I I like to call it a hobby. I tell my patients, you have a hobby for life, meaning that it's something that uh, you should be aware of, something that you do well to take into consideration, something that is not met through an end goal and then it ends. It's something that you will be dealing with through life but it's also extremely gratifying to have a problem and solve it, have an issue with a tendon, have a joint that feels very unstable, and then learn to overcome that or see your tolerance for function and activity increase very, very directly thanks to your own efforts. I think that's a, a wonderful aspect of our hobby. And I also very strongly believe that if you your attention is drawn to health and your own ability to affect your level of health, for example, through a hypermobility-related condition, that can ultimately lead to a much healthier lifestyle and um, even greater longevity, possibly. So uh, there's just as much good as there's bad there oftentimes, uh, of course, allowing for the great variability in in the degree of hypermobility and the comorbidities. But 
I, I do think hobby is a better word. Absolutely. I love that perspective on it. And I, I think that's such an important message um, for the community because we do have so much to offer. And unfortunately, you know, I personally see one of our biggest obstacles um, as the lack of awareness in the world of our condition um, because we quote unquote look okay or we look, we don't, we, a lot of times we get told we don't look sick or we don't look injured. Um, and that's a double-edged sword because we, that can maybe allow us to push past our pain points. But if people aren't understanding, um, you know, sometimes the true extent to which we're suffering, that can really set us back. So the more, um, the more people are aware of their own condition and can speak about it in an informed way and feel empowered, um, is just the more, the better. And it seems like your practice is tailored at exactly that. So kudos to you for building that perspective. And, and I think, you know, you also talked about how having this hobby that comes with these challenges, it presents opportunities for us to solve those problems, which is gratifying. And I think once we've kind of gotten a handle of some of our own symptoms, being able to share that knowledge of what we've learned with others then makes the past suffering that we've gone through, maybe the pain, the fatigue, the pots, the brain fog, all the kind of, you know, almost comical but absurd things that we deal with on a day-to-day basis that are major stressors can become this source of strength that we can help other people avoid suffering and give meaning to our suffering. And, and I see your practice is doing exactly that. So great work. Thank you. I think that's very common for uh, many healthcare practitioners that they are drawn to their respective professions sometimes uh, because of fast uh, personal suffering, which both makes you understand the degree to which others are suffering, but also motivates you so strongly to alleviate some of that suffering. And, And that's, of course, exactly what you are doing as well. You're turning some personal hardships into a, a helping other people and empowering other people, which is wonderful. Thanks. Um, and so this folds well into my next question. Um, so as I'm sure you're aware, uh, physical therapy, um, which is a big part of your practice, is controversial in the hypermobile community. Um, some patients have gotten much, much better with targeted physical therapy programs Um, And other patients have struggled or even gotten worse with their physical therapy regimens. And that can be a very defeating process. Um, You know, a lot of us are very hard on ourselves. Um, We have very high standards. And if we, you know, can't meet an exercise regimen, especially if it's coming from someone who's maybe not informed about hypermobility and how, um, how we're built a little differently, um, that can be really challenging and really demoralizing for a lot of people. Um, Many patients have experienced having symptom flares after physical therapy sessions or being unable to keep up with the programs they are assigned, either due to the difficulty of the programs, pain flares, or other symptoms associated with hypermobility. Of course, there's mast cell activation and POT symptoms. Um, Do you have thoughts on this controversy and why it seems so difficult for hypermobile patients to find a physical therapy program that is beneficial for them? Absolutely. Um, I'm fortunately not aware of any controversy in the healthcare, um, among healthcare professionals that are familiar with EDS and HSD when it comes to the appropriateness of physical therapy for um, treating the musculoskeletal manifestations of hypermobility conditions. Uh, it's actually the most uh, effective and the most direct uh, way of addressing uh, those. But I'm, of course, certainly aware of, uh, of how common it is that uh, hypermobile patients have uh, very disappointing experiences with, uh, with physical therapy. And uh, I unfortunately hear that, I would say, from the majority of my new patients. When I take their medical history, I hear that they have tried various uh, modalities, um, including physical therapy, and really to no avail, and very, very often um, with uh, with increased pain or injuries as a result. So I'm really hats off to those patients who still don't give up and are brave enough to 
come see someone like myself, for example. And based on the description of their previous therapy and their previous experiences, I've really come to believe that the main problem is that these patients are being treated as if though they are not hypermobile. In other words, they're getting the same uh, approach, the same expectations, the same treatment um, at the same speed as uh, other patients. And treating a hypermobile body is very, very different from, for example, addressing an acute musculoskeletal injury in an in the average person. So that's uh, really where it goes wrong. In my opinion, hypermobility has to be treated uh, very differently. The body has to be built up very systematically from the inside out, as it were, and uh, the tempo may be a bit different. Uh, the patient needs to understand that their uh, their progress may be a little bit slower, but it is just as possible, and the hypermobile tissues respond just as well as other tissues to uh, the loads we placed on them in, in physical therapy. So with the right approach, the hypermobile body can certainly be... Uh, strengthened and gain enough resilience so that we can tolerate the forces that we like to expose it to, whether it's everyday activities, uh, sports and exercise, or, or those special times in life that we mentioned, like pregnancy, childbirth, or child rearing, without uh, constantly vacillating between pain and injury and, and some degree of function. That's such a great point. And I agree. It's, it's, a difficult thing for a lot of patients because we know that movement is medicine and we're told that, but a lot of us have gotten into, you know, guarded patterns. We've been injured multiple times before. And so our movement has become dysfunctional and it's become associated with pain and, you know, pushing through that pain often results in pain for multiple days, you know, severe flares. And so I, I, I like your approach of, you know, starting from the inside and building up kind of systematically and starting where the patient is and recognizing that it, it's a fundamentally different place than someone with, you know, adequately dense connective tissue um, or I guess more dense connective tissue, let's say, because there's certainly advantages, you know, to having the flexibility as we've talked about. Um, so I think that's so great that you um, focus on the individuals of, of your patients um, your patient's individual issues. Um, let's talk a little bit about pain. Um, what have you observed when, about pain, both chronic and acute, in your practice uh, in working with hypermobile patients? Well, pain, of course, is a big topic here, right, when it comes to hypermobility. Pain is, is almost always what brings patients to physical therapy in general. Although I am very pleased to say that uh, a lot of young hypermobile patients do seek physical therapy out in order to prevent problems instead of waiting uh, to react to pain and problems. And in that regard, in my experience, the hypermobile patients are a bit smarter than the average patient and, and often understand the importance of, of doing that. That's great. But... Um, since untreated hypermobility so easily, almost predictably, leads to pain and injuries, especially in our day and age, when we move less and are a bit weaker than our forefathers, foremothers, forebears, mm -hmm. um, it very easily leads to tissue irritation and injuries. So uh, most patients who do walk in to a physical clinic, physical therapy clinic, have pain, and many of them, of course, have what we would care to categorize as chronic pain, pain that's lasted for more than three to six months. And it's especially when pain becomes chronic that things become a bit more complicated because acute pain, of course, is a signal from our body to our brain that of either impending tissue injury or tissue injury that's already occurred. So it's a very appropriate warning signal, a guide, that tells us to make some change to what we're doing in order to not injure our bodies. Whereas chronic pain is more complex uh, because it can either be a sign of some ongoing issue in the body that can and arguably should be corrected, but 
chronic pain can also be a sign of sensitization to to uh, either pain signals or even even signals that aren't really pain signals, such as pressure, touch, temperature, that sort of thing. And when we go into that realm, that's often called central sensitization. Central referring to the nervous system, that that's where the changes are taking place, not out there in the periphery with the bones and muscles and ligaments and that sort of thing. So you could say that acute pain um, is like someone ringing the doorbell, waiting to be let in. Chronic pain uh, with central sensitization is uh, the doorbell being stuck and just ringing and ringing, even though no one's there waiting to be let in. So it's ringing for no good reason. And with um, a, a, a hypermobile patient with chronic pain, there's often an overlap. So there may be many acute issues, uh, sorry, many chronic issues of dysfunction in the musculoskeletal system that need to be addressed. Uh, but then there's an overlap of that central sensitization that you tend to have to to some degree or another that is then making the pain much worse and much more noticeable than it needs to be. So the the pain, in other words, is not uh, proportionate anymore to the degree of tissue problems that the person is experiencing. So they are suffering uh, unnecessarily from that to an unnecessarily high um, degree. And uh, with, um, and of course I'm simplifying a very complex um, topic here, but I do believe that it's extremely helpful to understand the true nature of pain, that it is not a measure, uh, or at least not a, a very trustworthy or predictable measure of the degree of, of problems in, in the actual body. And that can actually be very helpful to understand that, that say, my knee is not in as bad of a shape as I might believe it is. There might be other issues that are overlaid on, over that. Um, another thing that I'd really like to mention in this context, too, that I think um, hypermobile patients are more sensitive to than others, and that is this uh, idea of, of being told to be, pu be pushing through pain. Uh, and uh, that's something that I don't uh, believe in at all. There's, of course, a difference between discomfort and pain. Exercising is not supposed to be comfortable. I exercised this morning. I can't say that I was comfortable, uh, but I didn't have pain. So I actually tell all my patients that, at least in my opinion, or while working with me, physical therapy should never hurt. You may have already existing discomfort that's not going to automatically fall away because you are engaged in therapy. But the exercises that you're doing, for example, the lifestyle changes that you're instituting, the postural changes, the ergonomic changes that you're making, they should not be painful. And uh, I've, I've never had a patient fail because they didn't push through pain. That's not the issue ever. People fail because they lack the perseverance or the ability to work as long and as much as it may need to. It can take a while to rehabilitate a hypermobile body. But I've never seen anyone fail because they didn't just push through their pain and, and somehow come out victorious on the other side. And doing uh, that, trying to disregard pain, can actually increase chronic pain. So that can be another one of the reasons why some people have had uh, difficulty with their previous physical therapy. Absolutely. I think that's such an important observation. And uh, many of us, especially because so many of us are diagnosed later in life and we don't know that we have these issues, we do push past pain because we go and see doctors and we're told you're just fine. There's no problem. And so we have that internal dialogue. I, I myself have experienced that where it's like, you know, I'm in terrible shoulder pain. My neck's in spasm, but I'm thinking the doctor said it's fine. So shoulder, you're fine. You know, stop talking to me. And that's not at all how this works. And so kind of re-educating the 
body and mind is so important. And that's why working with somebody who understands hypermobility is so important. And that's why your role as having, you know, experienced, you know, the condition, you know, as varied as it is, you know, obviously there's, you know, a complete spectrum here, but you having more familiarity with hypermobility um, just seems like a great asset. And it just speaks to the importance of patients to be able to work with the provider who, if they're not hypermobile themselves, at least is significantly trained and aware of our unique limitations and, uh, you know, how our starting points might be um, quite different. Um, and, and our pace, like you said, the rhythm uh, might have to look very different um, than the sort of average or baseline patient. Um, I try to avoid using the word normal, but it's sort of hard to, um, and, and it's, it's thinking of this on a spectrum, like I often wonder, you know, are there people that are hypomobile that are, you know, have too much connective tissue that are sort of too rigid? Um, and we don't really hear much about that. I mean, I think there are some conditions that are associated with that, but, um, but yeah, but um, everything you said just um, very much resonates. Um, and it's, it's a difficult topic because I think, you know, a lot of us, you know, we don't want to talk about being in pain. We don't want to sort of add fuel to the fire. So we'll get in a tendency of avoiding it. But like you said, that can make it worse. Like we really have to try to be as mindful as possible, as difficult as that is, and um, and listen to our bodies. And, and that reminds me of that interesting study that you mentioned earlier when we spoke about um, interoception and the heart rate, would you mind just telling our listeners a little bit about that? Because I found that so interesting and it, it really spoke to me. So I think others might find it interesting as well. Yes, there was a small study and unfortunately I, I can't remember by um, whom right now, but we can look that up later. Um, they uh, looked at a few individuals, 10 uh, total, if memory serves, so a very small sample size, of course. And they used technology to see um, exactly when the individual's hearts were beating. And then they asked the individuals to tell them, the researchers, when they thought their heart was beating. And what they found was that there was a very even spread through the group. Uh, at one end of the spectrum, the individuals could not tell at all when their hearts were beating. They had no idea, no no sense of that. And uh, some people in the middle were sort of guessing. They were a little bit close, but it wasn't very accurate. And then uh, a few people in the group at the other end of the spectrum had an absolute clear sense of when their heart was beating. They could feel it very um, clearly. And... Uh, I remember being surprised when I read this study, thinking there are people who can't feel their heart beating. <laughs> I never thought of that before. Uh, turns out I'm married to one of those. And uh, then what they did was they gave the participants a validated um, questionnaire for empathy. And what they found was a correlation, very uh, strict correlation between the um, interceptive ability to feel when your heart is beating and a higher level of empathy and conversely with the people who had trouble feeling their hearts beating uh, with uh, with lesser degrees of empathy and of course this is not specific to the heart they just chose the heart as a proxy for being able to feel our own bodies in a way that would be predictable and useful uh, in a study I think that's such an important observation because it's such a good reminder that the more in touch we are with ourselves on the most basic physical level, which almost maybe feels too basic, um, the more we're capable of being there for others. So the more we've taken care of ourselves, the more of, the, of us there is to give and to you know build from a place of abundance instead of always be drawing from a place of, of lacking. And it, it strikes me that this is an ability that can be trained. I would think that if you, you know, maybe you can go from not recognizing your heart rate to if you think about it and, you know, spend time just calmly listening to your body, maybe it's something that people can become more in tune to. 
Um, but at the very least, it's a good illustration of um, the, the concept of putting your own oxygen mask on first, I guess, you know, when in the plane, I've heard people say, once I heard someone say, oh, he's the kind of guy who puts on his own oxygen mask first. And I thought, but that's the proper procedure. It's what you're supposed to do. Because if you don't put your own oxygen mask on first, you can't help anyone else. So, um, you know, we have this sense that in our culture, sometimes I think we get the message that taking care of ourselves. Um, and, you know, spending time getting to know ourselves, you know, is, is selfish. And I guess, you know, in the most basic definition of the term it is, but it's deeply necessary and is kind of fundamental to our ability to be selfless as well. I think that's absolutely true. At the end of the day, whether it's our physical body uh, directly or our mental, emotional uh functions that's what we are using to understand other people to uh, associate with other people help other people so uh, you have to take care of that tool and i agree with you that with training we can shift uh, we are born with a range whether it comes to physical capacity uh, have capacity for happiness or capacity for empathy whatever it may be but within that range I believe strongly in striving to be at the top of your range as opposed to at the bottom of your range. And that's exactly how I see um, rehabilitation for physical therapy too. We're not saying that everyone can end up at the top being a top athlete or, uh, you know, ballerina, but everyone can achieve the top level of their own capacity, whatever that may be. And that's a worthy goal. Absolutely. Um, another big issue in many patients who have hypermobility conditions is jaw pain and, um, temporal mandibular jaw disorder, TMJ. Do you have thoughts on why this is the case and how do you analyze and treat TMJ and jaw issues? So the temporal mandibular joints are, they're of course subject to the same laxity as other joints. So um, in hypermobility conditions, it's uh, pre predictable that you would see more problems with that joint as well. But then there are also other underlying issues that um, some of which can um, do lend themselves to correction that are more common with hypermobility too, such as uh, poor uh, trunk stability, poor postural alignment or postural ergonomic habits, uh, that sort of thing. The proprioception, of course, plays a role here. And then it's also common to see uh, just structural differences in the jawbone, for example, it being more narrow, uh, the teeth not quite having the space, <laughs> the space that they need, etc. So there are structural issues too that play a part. So I think that it's very important not just to look at the joint in isolation as if though it came floating into the office alone, but to look at the whole environment in which it exists, in other words, the whole person, and then address all of those various issues, as opposed to just talking about not biting into hard objects or opening your jaw too wide or what have you because you, um, some of those issues are more malleable than others. Absolutely. Um, that's such a great point. And again, I just, I love how much you put everything in context and look at the whole person and not just the one issue or the one, you know, diagnosis they have, because the way our current medical system is organized, it's very siloed and people are very specialized and they're looking at one particular part. And so, it's, it makes sense how we all end up with the perception that we have 50 different problems when really we have one root cause issue that manifests in a lot of different ways. But that can be really challenging when you're working with multiple providers and, you know, maybe they're not communicating with each other. So you may even be getting conflicting advice. And, you know, I think a lot of us patients just wish all of our doctors could sit in a room with each other and hash out, you know, what are we supposed to be doing here? But that's where having a practitioner um, who either has, you know, experienced hypermobility themselves like you, or is really familiar with the condition is just critical because we're, we're just, you know, constructed a little differently. I, I heard recently a doctor 
who specializes in Ehlers-Danlos, described the condition as like building a house, but the mortar is weak. And I think that's a, a good visual for people because, you know, we, we look okay, you know, or even sometimes we maybe look good that, you know, our, our skin maybe doesn't sag as much because it doesn't have as far to go. It was more stretchy to begin with. So it doesn't have as far to fall. I'm not sure, but um, you know, a lot of us kind of look younger than our years or we look sort of different and yet um, you know, our internal sense, you know, most people don't have to deal with joints popping out multiple times a day and, you know, random skin issues and teeth issues and whatever else. And so, um, yeah, just another great, important reminder of, um, how we're, you know, a whole person and just kind of looking at zeroing in with a microscope on one area definitely has its limitations. Um, so we've talked a bit about your, your physical therapy practice, but you also offer health and wellness coaching. Can you tell us a little bit about what that program is like for patients? Yeah, so that really ties in so strongly to what you were just saying a moment ago. Um, you know, I, I like to tell my patients that, or remind my patients rather that, um, with if you have an issue with your kidneys there's a nephrologist that you can go to and so on and so forth there is no hypermobilist so that really leaves um us as patients with a much greater responsibility whether we like it or not to be in charge of our own conditions at least to the extent that we need to understand them better than uh, one may have to understand some other condition so in general, I don't believe in completely separating one aspect of reality from another because that is just um, a construct that doesn't exist in, in reality, right? So while it is so important to have these individuals with deep expertise in their respective areas, it's equally important to understand the whole. And I do believe that experts have to, at least to some extent, be generalists for healthcare to work. Otherwise, um, you know, it just won't play out well within that individual actual patient. And so when it comes to all these other non-musculoskeletal areas of, of health and being, hypermobile individuals, of course, very often have uh, difficulty with sleep, digestion, mood, attention, uh, we have POTS, we have MCAS that affects people a lot. There can be issues with uh, deep fatigue, etc. And all of these aspects will affect the person. So we only stare um, at one aspect, the musculoskeletal system, while the patient goes home and can't sleep. That's not going to work. That's just me saying then, well, I did what I could. I did my physical therapy and maybe they can find someone else out there who understands hypermobility and sleep. But as we know, good luck with that. So I do believe that it's very important to understand uh, the patient as a whole. And in uh, my ultimate goal, my ambition for every patient, if they themselves uh, desire that, of course, I don't like to tell other people's what, people what they should do or what their goals should be. I want to be respectful of each individual's goals and how much they work they want to put in, etc. But my ambition is not only to overcome pain or dysfunction in a particular specific area of the body, but ultimately to tolerate life and including exercise at the level that benefits their overall health, just like anyone else, because we need that just as much as anyone else. We need cardiovascular fitness. We need muscle mass, et cetera, in order to thrive and to be at that top of our capacity that I talked about instead of uh, the bottom of it. So I incorporate health and wellness, general lifestyle um, um, changes into my physical therapy care, uh, but individuals also seek it out separately. So they might come in with uh, the problem of just being extremely stressed and having that affect various aspects of their life or having a sleep problem or not quite understanding how their dietary 
choices fit into their problems progressing with their exercise or what have you. That makes a lot of sense. And um, again, it just, it's such a testament to the value of your practice. And that's really what we need in this community. If only we could clone you and, you know, have your knowledge base, you know, be spread out more widely so that it could, um, you know, be able to reach more people because this is really exactly what we need. And unfortunately, in so many areas, as we've talked about previously, there's a real lack of literacy about even the basics about hypermobility, let alone this kind of comprehensive, you know, looking at us, you know, as a big picture. Um, you know, there's still so many doctors who think of this as just being about the joints. And, um, you know, as we know, it's way beyond that connective tissue is, you know, virtually everywhere in our body and is, you know, a major um, type of tissue. And obviously people with hypermobility are affected to different degrees and in different areas. But um, yeah, I just, I I really, I think that comprehensive approach of looking at the whole person with their needs and their goals and, you know, trying to empower them to, um, you know, live a life that works for them in their circumstances. I think that's, you know, incredibly critically important. So um, kudos to you for offering that. Um, Issues with proprioception, you know, the sense of where our body is in space can also be very difficult in patients with hypermobility conditions. Can you explain a little bit about what you've observed with respect to proprioception in hypermobile patients and how you treat and address those issues? Absolutely. So um, uh, as you mentioned, proprioception is our ability to understand where we are in space, where our respective body parts are in space. And we're able to understand that uh, through um, um, little so-called mechanoreceptors. There are different types of little receptors spread out through the tissues of the body. And then they... uh, lead signals to the brain with information about uh, what's going on in those tissues. And as my son uh, has told me a couple of times, the brain sits in a dark room in your skull and doesn't know what's going on. So it needs to be fed information from, uh, from the outside. And that's exactly what goes on. Now, a lot of these uh, mechanoreceptors live in tissues that are more lax in the hypermobile person. So uh, they end up signaling a little less effectively to the brain about what is happening. So for example, if you have a hypermobile ankle and you step on a rock that tilts your ankle sideways, you will get that, your brain will get that information a bit later than a stiffer person might, a more stable joint might. So uh, that might lead to uh, a greater risk of injuries, for example. Uh, that might lead to a harder time balancing and performing um, exercises or activities that require that. It can lead to what might be perceived as a little bit of an overall clumsiness, or it might uh, lead to something my daughter and I notice a lot that cell phones and other things seem to spring from our hands and just f- go flying somewhere. And that's that same lack of proprioception manifest in our, in our hands, for example. Uh, and this can increase, this, this proprioceptive problem can increase through injuries. So if a person has an injury to their neck, for example, neck muscles, tissues in the neck are very important messengers to the brain about our position. So that can lead to uh, imbalance and uh, dizziness, that sort of thing. Ankle sprains are very common with hypermobile individuals. And once you have sprained a joint, you have overstretched the ligaments and they do not return to their normal length. So as a result of that, the person is then more prone in the future to ankle sprains and can um, experience them more. Uh, Fortunately here too, there's so much that can be done and we can overcome uh, a lot of these difficulties through uh, rehabilitation and regain a lot of the stability. So proprioception is something that becomes better with training and worse with rest and inactivity. 
And uh, for example, a quick example is the ankle. So let's say those ligaments have been sprained once several times. They're a little stretched out. The ankle is loose. Uh, if we decide to rehabilitate the ankle, we can strengthen the whole leg starting at the hip. We can uh, stabilize the trunk, making it easier for the ankle to do its work. And with training, the brain can learn to pick up on proprioceptive cues from the muscles in the legs and rely more on those than on those loose ligaments. And at the end of the day, then the person has a much better um, ability to use their proprioceptive sense uh, throughout the leg. That's fantastic. That sounds great. And I think it's such an important point to make that some of these skills are trainable um, because when you talked about clumsiness, that resonated with me deeply. Uh, One of my friends once remarked that I was the only person he knew that could trip themselves while standing still. (laughs) That's, it's completely true. Like I can just kind of, you know, fall to the side and it's embarrassing. And again, this goes to this awareness issue. It's like, you know, you can be completely sober and you just trip and fall. It's like, what's going on with you? Are you, you know, having an off day? You had a few too many, what's going on? And it's, um, you know, and then you feel the shame and the embarrassment of, Oh, you know, why did I just trip? Um, but, um, it's funny because it's a, that's a double-edged sword too, because in some ways I'm, I'm incredibly clumsy. You know, I, I've had to replace so many glasses. I constantly break or like the phone, like you said, everything's just flying out of my hands and I you know, lose it. But then sometimes my reflexes seem almost superhuman, like spidey sense, like I can drop something really fast, but then I can catch it. And it almost surprises me like, whoa, where was that? You know, where was that attentiveness and that reflex when I dropped it in the first place, but it was there to help pick it up. And so Um, again, I just think like these efforts to get awareness out there and, you know, both to the community about how we can present and look, you know, very different and have these kind of strange, quirky attributes, but also educating people about their own bodies that these traits that they may be embarrassed or ashamed of, or, you know, struggling with can be trained with someone who's has knowledge and experience that they're not static traits you know like i think you mentioned when we spoke earlier it's not like your eye color where you're just stuck with it it's like these things are teachable and trainable um but it can take a lot of time and a lot of patience and a lot of um creativity you know to find something that works especially um for some of us who have you know been diagnosed late in life once we've already had a lot of complications and surgeries, injuries, you know, and again, goes back to why awareness is so important, because if we can get the word out there sooner, so people can be aware of these things and incorporating them into their life from an earlier age, you know, they're going to have, hopefully, you know, better outcomes, or at least better emotional responses when these things come up that, you know, this injury is is an injury, it's it's a setback, but it's not going to you know, hopefully, you know, derail me further. Um, and, and I think that's where your practice is so um, just incredible. And so, um, yeah, I guess for my last question, um, uh, I'd just like to ask what, if anything, if you had, if you could do any kind of research or what, what do you think is the most important um, thing for the hypermobile community, if you had a magic wand, you know, what would you do to, uh, you know, is there a particular area of research you think is, uh, you know, important or just, you know, global awareness of everyone, at least knowing what hypermobility is, I guess, if if you could do one thing for the community, what, what would be your dream? Well, I've, I've really bumped up against the lack of research. Um, I'm working on a manuscript about physical therapy for hypermobility, and it's frustrating how little direct research there is and how much we have to extrapolate from human physiology and research into the average population, etc. And there's just such a lack of research that I can't even begin to pick and, and choose, <laughs> choose a favorite there, it would just be re- more research uh, specific to EDS, for example, across the board. But um, if there's one thing that I could change, I really believe in information and education so uh, strongly. And that's why I started my Instagram account on the topic as well. 
because overall awareness among the general population is important. We certainly want healthcare practitioners to understand hypermobility better. But I believe that it really starts with and begins and ends with the individual. We need to understand ourselves. We need to become more empowered. It leads to better uh, choices. It leads to hanging in there when it comes to doing physical therapy. It leads to making the right lifestyle choices. It facilitates the search for the appropriate practitioners. And it helps us understand and raise our hypermobile children better. Uh, so if I could wave that magic wand, I would have um, more people like yourself out there doing wonderful podcasts like the one you're doing and spreading this information. So thank you very much for doing that. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. And right back at you. Thank you so much. This has been such a refreshing conversation. And I think our listeners are going to gain so much um, from it. And so just thanks again for joining us today. Um, it's been really lovely. We'll put links in the description for the episode to your website and to your Instagram page. So um, listeners can reach out to you. Um, and I, com I completely second, you know, your hope for more research, because I agree, it's just, it's, it's almost shameful, really, how little research has been done. I mean, Ehlers and Danlos, you know, lived in the latter part of the 19th century and the early part of the 20th century, I think, respectively. And I think Hippocrates first described us in 400 BC or first described hypermobile people. And so this, there's been awareness on the fringes for a really long time. And yet it seems like there just hasn't been you know, the interest or the will and a lot of maybe reasons for why that is. But I think us, you know, working together and talking about these things is such an important step to take, you know, control of, of what we can in, you know, our sometimes chaotic and clumsy lives. And so, um, yeah, just again, a huge thanks to you for your time and for all that you do. Um, and uh, that's it for this episode of Hypermobility Happy Hour. Thanks to, so much for to Lillian Holm for joining us, and thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com um, with any episode suggestions, questions, comments. Um, and if you are listening to us on one of the respective apps, if you want to leave us a review, um, that helps us to get a wider reach. Um, and you can also follow us on Instagram at hypermobilityhhgram. Um, so thanks again to everyone, and we'll see you next time on Hypermobility Happy Hour. Bye.